Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watts podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the week in the February of March 5th through the 7th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Apologies for the somewhat delayed episode this week. Uh, got some major life changes. Nothing too drastic, but still taking up a lot of my time. Uh, that basically kept me from recording Monday night as per usual. Uh, that being said, we had a very eventful weekend to go over, which I have a lot of thoughts about, uh, with three new films in the top five. Plus, uh, this week marks the approximately one-year mark since COVID-19 that took over our lives and shut down movie theaters. And, appropriately enough, it also marks the return of New York theaters to being open again, albeit with limited capacity. Uh, we'll get into all of that later, but for now, let's hop into our top story by way of talking about the top five domestic films this weekend. So, topping the chart this week is newcomer from Disney, Raya and the Last Dragon, Disney's latest entry in their animated feature film canon and the first depiction of a Southeast Asian film uh, lead from the studio. Uh, over the three-day period, Raya made $8.5 million in 2045 theaters for a per-theater average of $4,158. Now, obviously, the big deal here is that Raya premiered both in theaters and on Disney+, albeit with the latter in the premiere access model, where on top of your monthly subscription fee, you pay an additional $30 to own the film so long as you stay subscribed to Disney+. Uh, this is similar to the Mulan live-action remake last fall, with the major difference being that Mulan did not have a theatrical release option uh, aside from regions where Disney+, Plus was not yet available. Mulan did well enough, apparently, for Disney to iterate on the model uh, to experiment and see if perhaps the hybrid release uh, model of theater and uh, premiere access or maybe a better received film, you know, Raya is rated higher than Mulan is, uh, you know, would basically make premiere access make sense for them for potentially future hits, uh, with the elephant in the room being the upcoming MCU film Black Widow. Now, whether or not that's whether or not uh, Black Widow is going to keep its May 7th release date or if it gets pushed back um, and whether or not Black Widow will be theatrical only or similarly re mixed release model. Now, we don't have any insights yet uh, into how many users ended up biting for Premiere Access, uh, but signs suggest that Disney was off the mark here. Uh, the biggest point of comparison is that Raya opened to a lower opening weekend total, only $8.5 compared to last week's $14 million opening of similarly family-focused film Tom and Jerry, uh, Warner HBO Max simultaneous release. Um, one big thing reason for this is, of course, that Cinemark as well as Cineplex up in Canada, had opted to not run Raya in theaters since they could not come to terms with Disney as far as RevSeo goes. Uh, for in comparison, Warner and HBO Max, they're still providing a one-month exclusivity to theaters later on in the run, um, and they also provided a more favorable RevSeer. But it appears that Disney reportedly is still keeping the relatively high take, about 50% uh, of total box office revenue. Uh, and without any theatrical exclusivity. Uh, Cinemark did tweet out that they will have HBO Max's uh, Godzilla vs. Kong in theaters on release date, so that kind of adds credibility to this theory. Uh, this dropped the number of theaters that Raya opened in from a potential 2,400-2,500 down to only 2,000 across the country. Uh, on top of that, the per theater average was not also quite as high, um, with only 4.1 thousand per theater this week, uh, as opposed to Tom and Jerry last week opening to 5.7 thousand. Now, 
if you take say you know uh you know if you take um Raya and basically add what Tom and Jerry made this week it's about what Tom and Jerry, you know, made last week. So kind of combined the total addressable market for family-friendly films, there may be some degree of competition, right? Um, where, you know, families want to see either Tom and Jerry or or, or Raya um, will come to theaters for that, right? And Tom and Jerry is a bit more of an established brand, you know, with many, many decades of history where while there is the Disney name attached to uh, Raya and the Last Dragons, uh, it, is a rel- it is pretty much a brand new IP from Disney. Uh, Marketing-wise, it also seems that Disney didn't really promote Raya to the general audience as heavily as Warner Brothers did for Tom and Jerry. Um, I did see a lot of buzz on my personal social media, but I am cued in on that community of people who are really all about getting Asian American representation on screen more often. Uh, so I, of course, I would see that. Um, you know, and again, you know, this is the other fact is, of course, that as I mentioned, Tom and Jerry uh, had pretty much no competition in its first week. The only, the only real family-friendly competition being the fourteen-week-old Croods two um, against, you know, yeah, instead of Raya, which had to compete against Tom and Jerry. So, whether that artificially handicapped or inflated the respective films' numbers uh, depends on your perspective. Um, my take on all this, I think that Disney kind of sought themselves in the foot here by both not marketing the film as aggressively as they could have, maybe a byproduct of them being reluctant to start marketing things up for Black Widow and kind of like all the processes in there not being all cylinders firing yet, um, but also not making concessions to Cinemark and other movie exhibitors uh, when they have the premiere access uh, uh, day and date release. You know, assuming they're going to be as stingy as usual when it comes to exhibitor terms moving forward, I think the net result of Raya, again, absent any specific numbers from how many users bought into Premiere Access, um, that essentially this hybrid model ultimately caused Disney to leave money on the table um, for when it could at the very least have matched Tom and Jerry's release, especially given that Raya had a larger budget than what Tom and Jerry did. Um, as far as how this might impact the release for Black Widow, I suspect this bodes well for people like myself who are hoping for a return to full theatrical exclusivity um, since it seems that pissing off exhibitors uh, when we're not at full capacity without making any concessions uh, seems like a bad idea um, when you know you, you need you need every uh, seat every theater every seat filled as you possibly can given capacity limits um, it looks like based on dates that we're getting for international release dates for Black Widow um, as well as comments yesterday uh, at Disney shareholder meeting uh, it looks like May 7th is still on track to be the Black Widow release date here in the States uh, with presumably still a theatrical exclusive release uh, the only potential I could see of them doing some sort of hybrid release would be kind of the inverse of the HBO Max model where they release in theaters theatrically first exclusively and then maybe a month 45 days later uh, it becomes available for premiere access on Disney Plus for people who still aren't comfortable going to a theater yet um, who knows if that's actually going to pan out though uh, side note, there was also a report from London-based uh, research from Omnia this week, not specifically about Ryan the Last Dragon, but they suggested that the majority of Americans would be willing to pay $15 to see a film earlier on streaming. And anecdotally, I've heard people say that $20 is a bit high, is pretty much the ceiling for what they would have paid to see Raya at home, and $30 of Premier Access was a bit rich for them. So perhaps another option would be also to lower the Premier Access cost for Disney. Um, again, though, reportedly, uh, the $30 mark they have now is equivalent 
equivalent to about five or six uh, in theater seats for them. Uh, so, you know, lowering it down to three would lower the margins to two and a half or three uh, theater seat equivalents, which, you know, I, I guess they, they were hoping would not be the case. Um, anyway, abroad internationally, Raya also underwhelmed somewhat. Um, again, a big part of that is that exhibitors in other countries also did not come to terms with Disney with the ref split. Um, in Japan, the largest theater chain, among others, uh, Toho, uh, you know, prevented Raya from being uh, showing in theaters, uh, meaning that the film only opened in fifth place uh, this past weekend in, in Japan. Uh, in China, it only opened in third, though it does have strong word of mouth. Um, and in Korea, it opened in only second. Um, one thing I'm definitely noticing is that for Hollywood and you know Disney in particular, they seem to be struggling with getting Asian American specific films to really resonate over in China um, and in in Asian general, but specifically China, right? Like um, we had Crazy Rich Asians, right, which did very well here in the states compared to what people were expecting, but didn't really hit off in China like people were ho probably hoping. Same thing with The Farewell, and obviously same thing with this Mulan remake uh, from last year. So, and Raya is kind of like the next one in that. Though, again, Raya does have stronger word of mouth. Um, this may be a sign that maybe Hollywood will just continue to have a harder time breaking into that market in the future. Um, anyway, in Latin America, Mexico-based Cinepolis and Cinemark, again, also opted to not run the film, uh, again, li limiting potential revenue. That being said, Raya did open at number one in many countries, including Russia, Taiwan, Australia, Thailand, Indonesia, and Singapore. Uh, overall, Raya made $17.6 million in 32 markets for an opening weekend total of $26.2 million. Okay, back to our domestic performances. In number two, we have the aforementioned Tom and Jerry film from Warner Brothers, sitting at 6.6 .6 million this week in 2,563 theaters, a 53% drop to 2,581 per theater average. Domestic totals sit at 22.9%. Um, the biggest thing to note here is that a 53% drop is pretty steep uh, for a film in its first week, especially in pandemic period. So it seems that the HBO Max releases, by virtue of being available uh, on, you know, first free on streaming to subscribers um, basically uh, means that this film is going to be front-loaded in the theaters. Um, abroad, it sits at $34.3 million for a lifetime total of $57.3 million. Uh, in number three this week, we have another new film, Chaos Walking from Lionsgate, opening to $3.7 million in 1980 theaters for a per theater average of $1,907. Uh, this one is a poorly received young adult film starring starring a Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley that had a budget of about $100 million, so definitely not going to be making that back. Um, they even got the IMAX screens away from Raya, um, and even that couldn't help. However, it seems, according to Deadline's reporting, that this one was more dumped in this date more than anything else after some internal politics at the studio, um, which kind of makes sense, I guess, that you know another young adult novel film and it just didn't work out for them. So uh, in any case, Chaos Walking made another $2.6 million abroad for a worldwide total of five of $6.3 million. Uh, in number four is yet another new film, Boogie from Focus Features. Uh, this one is from the mind behind the ABC Asian American sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, food icon Eddie Wong. Uh, it's about an Asian kid from Flushing, New York, who has dreams of becoming a basketball star and has to balance it against his family obligations. Uh, this is the perfect film for reopenings of New York theaters. Um, and again, one I'm personally interested in from the Asian American uh, representation on screen, though cin cinema score wasn't quite as high as a C plus only. Um, it 
opened in 1,252 theaters for a total of 1.2 million, just under a 1,000 per theater average. Finally, rounding out the top five is the ever-present Crude's A New Age in week 15, making $788,000 in 16.04 theaters for a per theater average of $491, a 37% drop. Domestic total sits at $53 million, with international at $104 million. Lifetime total sits at $157 million. Uh, with New York markets reopened this weekend, even with riots underperformance, we've hit the third highest weekend since the pandemic shut down theaters at $23.8 million total, behind tenants reopening of weekend of $27 million, though that may be a little sus because of how you know they counted the, between two weekends, so may actually be second, um, and behind the Christmas weekend at $24 million. Um, and you know this is the first time we've had two back-to-back weekends counting last week and this week at $20 million plus per weekend. So uh, we'll see if this momentum can continue. Um, now, this time last year was, again, probably the last normal weekend for the box office with $100 million totals, uh, with Pixar's Onward opening to $39 million dollars in its opening weekend uh, no super major releases for the rest of the month so that may you know limit the ability to keep that trend going but godzilla versus kong at the end of the year with all of the marketing that's going behind it and the memes online um, i expect it to be do really really well that may even do 20 million all on its own um, plus, you know, I guess there's also the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League if you count that on HBO Max, which apparently got leaked a little bit early for some people who were trying to watch Tom and Jerry. But yeah. Um, okay, I already hinted at some international numbers when talking about Raya, but other highlights. Uh, in Korea, uh, awards contender uh, film about Korean, um, Korean-American family, Minari, uh, opened at number one to $2.2 million, the biggest U.S. opening since based uh, the U.S. the base biggest film from the U.S. to open in Korea since the pandemic started since Seoul. Um, and no, this next one is something I could only reported because I'm a day late. But uh, for the anime film news, the final Evangelion remake film uh, opened in on Monday the eighth, uh, selling five hundred and thirty thousand tickets to 800 million yen uh, or about 7.3 million US dollars not quite near demon layer slayer numbers uh, I'd be very surprised if they were but it is above the last Evangelion films numbers by about 23% and that one opened on a weekend on Saturday as opposed to Monday and you know the Tokyo region still has a uh, curfew when it comes to uh, movie theaters being open so that also limited the ability of working adults to be able to see the film you know so Plus, also, the release date was only announced two weeks ago. So, you know, all things pretty respectable for this, you know, titan of a film uh, in the in the industry. Um, moving over to China, looking at the top five, Hi Mom repeats at number one with $22 million for a lifetime total of $782 million. Uh, this one is good enough to push it to the number two spot on China's all-time box office chart with only Wolf Warrior 2 ahead at $873 million. It's not likely to get there, but still a great job to all involved there. Uh, in second place, we have Andy Lau's Endgame uh, with 10 million US dollars. Lifetime total sits at 89 million dollars. Um, as noted, Ryan the Last Dragon opened at number three with 8.4 million dollars US dollars. Um, currently has a 9.1 on Mao Yan, so this should have a strong word of mouth and help it survive and do okay there. I believe this actually opened above what Soul uh, did, um, so you know th- that bodes well for the film. 
Um, in fourth place, Detective Chinatown 3 made $8 million with a lifetime total of $678 million. Uh, and rounding out the top five is Writer's Odyssey making $5.7 million with a lifetime total of $148 million. Also worth noting, Tom and Jerry dropped 89% in China in its second week. Uh, some other China news, it looks like there might be a re-release of the Avatar film uh, this coming Friday. Um, now, there were rumors of this in past weeks, so I'm not sure if it's actually going to pan out. But if it does come to pass, it'll be interesting to see if that's enough to put it over the edge to retake the crown of top-grossing film of all time from Avengers Endgame. Uh, and after reporting last week that Nomadland, the uh, favorite to win the Oscars Best Picture this year, um, would have the after the news that Nomadland would have released in China, um, you know, it looks like after some nationalist backlash against the uh, Chinese native, uh, you know, the the um, Chloe Zhao, the director, um, it may be pulled or at least heavily censored there. Um, I wouldn't expect it to make gangbusters over there, but more relevantly for this podcast i think uh, i'm curious to see how you know the backlash against chloe Zhao may impact marvel's uh next film uh the eternals from actually doing well uh in china so we'll just have to wait and see all right so that's all the box office numbers and international news uh, what other topics are there to cover like I said, New York theaters, New York City theaters have reopened this past weekend, and we have now hit 80% of the country's movie theaters being open again. Um, again, this is only with a 25% capacity, um, and the New York, but the New York market blew up uh, from about $220,000 uh, the weekend prior. You know, in surrounding DMA, you know, surrounding areas and drive-in theaters, to over a million dollars this weekend, uh, a 380% jump week over week, um, and this made up 6.5% of the total box office this weekend, the highest in the country. Uh, Liam Neeson even came out to the AMC Lincoln Square uh, Theater to thank attendees of his film The Marksman for coming out, um, and even Tenet came back to theaters after supposedly closing its theatrical run. Uh, now, again, I still haven't gone to theaters. I don't plan to until I get my vaccine, but still heartening, heartening to hear all of this, though it does put me in a quandary to wanting to go to see all the films from my Oscar Death Race podcast um, at the IFC Center, but choosing not to. Um, anyway, Regal Cinemas may still be closed uh, until LA reopens, um, even though New York has opened, but that is looking more and more likely every day. Uh, theme parks are set to reopen in the state with capacity limits starting on April 1st, and seven California counties were able to reopen theaters last week, including in San Francisco. And just yesterday, Los Angeles dipped below that tier into that tier of COVID-19 case numbers, where if they can keep those numbers down for a week, theaters may reopen uh, at the same New York City capacity limits as soon as next week, um, with an increase in the number of vaccine doses being distributed, making it possibly happen even sooner. Again, now realistically, it probably won't be this weekend, but as soon as next week, the weekend of March March nineteenth, it could happen. Uh, now, you know, somewhat controversially, Texas's governor opened everything up to one hundred percent starting the day this episode comes out, March tenth. Um, now, that doesn't mean that theaters aren't still imposing their own self-imposed limits. Notably, the Alamo Drafthouse is still keeping requiring mandatory masks uh, for patrons to attend their theaters. That all being said, uh, no, that one, the Albo Draft House is in the news for other reasons, not quite as positive. Uh, the popular exhibitor uh, declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy last week, selling their assets to private equity firm Altamont Capital and Fortress Investment, uh, and closing a few locations, including their uh, landmark Ritz uh, Theater in, uh, in Austin. Uh, that said, 
while this seems very drastic, uh, it doesn't. It's not really as bad as it seems at first glance. Altamont Capital were already invested in the company, and founder slash chairman Tim Lee is still involved by way of another lending group who is acquiring the company as well. So hopefully, it helped. This you know, all of this means that Alma will basically do business as usual, just restructure the back end business things, um, and hopefully, it keeps its uniqueness that earned its many fans. Um, selfishly, I still hope that they open their Manhattan location soon. Um, that said, I guess technically this is another casualty of the pandemic from uh, the theater exhibition side, you know, as well as AMC's annual Oscar Marathon and a chance at an in-person San Diego Comic-Con this year. Um, another byproduct of the pandemic is, of course, uh, new release dates, though a lot of these actually are in the positive direction for once. Uh, Universal slightly delayed their flagship uh, Fast and Furious franchise's next entry, F9, from Memorial Day weekend out a month or so to June 5th. Not as drastic as the full-year pushback that they put into place last year at the start of the pandemic, um, but I'm not really sure why they're doing this, um, given that it seems to seems to be trending positively. I guess I just wanted to be sure that theaters uh, definitely would be back. Um, the same can't be said for their upcoming Minion sequel, uh, the fifth in the franchise, Minions The Rise of Gru. Uh, that was pushed back from July 2nd, 2021 to July 1st, 2022. Uh, notably, this was originally set for July 3rd, 2020. Moving over to Sony, uh, they have dated the Sam Raimi-produced horror film The Unholy for April 2nd for the Easter weekend, uh, perhaps to provide some counter-programming against Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, they also moved up, I think encouraged by the Tom and Jerry performance, a family-friendly film Peter Rabbit 2 The Runaway from June 11th to May 14th. Uh, notably, Sony did not make any announcements regarding their Spider-Verse villain film Venom 2, uh, Let There Be Carnage, um, that, since that is now sharing a date with F9 on July 25th. I would anticipate that to move at some point in the future. Um, they also did a, they also did announce a animated musical about demon hunting and K-pop girl group, um, and this is all by the same studio again that did Into the Spider-Verse, so I'm all into this. And, you know, finally, Paramount has moved A Quiet Place 2 up from September 17th all the way to May 28th, taking the place of Mark Wahlberg's action film Infinite, which basically swapped places moving to September 24th. Uh, this John Krasinski, Emily Bunt, Blunt horror thriller sequel um, to the to the popular A Quiet Place was probably one of the most impacted films of the pandemic. They literally had their red carpet March eighth, days before you know the country shut down, um, and you know now they're opening wide. You know just over a year later. A reminder that you know this one will be coming out to Paramount Plus forty five days after its theatrical release. Um, I suspect that the move is partly related to that uh, and helping the new streaming service make sure it has enough novel content early on to attract some subscribers. Now, speaking of Paramount Plus, there are no real numbers yet as far as how many users have signed up for the service, and we probably won't for a while, uh, either until third-party research firms try to guesstimate that number, or Paramount just tells us straight up at their next quarterly earnings report. Um, that being said, hopefully they're more in the Disney Plus camp, uh, who announced yesterday that they had just hit 100 million subscribers worldwide, and less like NBC's Peacock, uh, who announced a $914 million loss on the service um, in 2020. Uh, meanwhile, HBO Max is expected to launch an ad-supported version of their service uh, you know, in Q2 later this year to provide a lower price point for entry. Uh, and Dark Horse Discovery Plus apparently led January for a series of total signups of streaming services that month at 19%. 
And now, while they aren't giving us any numbers, uh, research firm Screen Engine reported that Eddie Murphy's Coming to America sequel was the largest opening weekend of the year past year, including topping Wonder Woman 1984 and Borat. And mind you, Wonder Woman 1984 was the highest uh, screened film opening weekend, um, you know, according to the same research firm. So uh, this bodes well for Coming to America. Um, I think this is probably due to a combination of Amazon Prime Video being one of the more widely available streaming services, you know, baked into the Europe. Prime account, um, as well as it also being a sequel to a very popular film and also family-friendly enough for everyone to watch together. Uh, finally, to wrap up the show, I think we owe it to ourselves to mark the fact uh, you know, that this week, uh, not this past weekend, but this week that this episode comes out, is the one-year anniversary of everything basically going to shit uh, and theater shutting down for basically a year straight, at least here in New York City. Uh, I remember uh, that week, you know, I guess time time really does flow differently in a pandemic. It feels just like yesterday, but um, I had opted to work from home that week anyway before everything happened. Um, maybe you know subconsciously, partly about you know the growing concerns about COVID. You know, uh, some ER doctors that I follow on Instagram were already posting about the surge in cases in the city. Um, but you know, I had a flexible work from like a working situation where I could work from home whenever I needed to, and you know, I was having some foot problems, so you know, I just kind of stayed at home. Um, but, you know, on March 12th, we kind of got hit with double whammy that made us all collectively as a nation sit up and take take it seriously, at least at first. Um, the night before, March 11th, the NBA, uh, right before uh, tip-off, uh, indefinitely suspended their season after the U- a Utah Jazz player tested positive for the, vaccine, for the va- virus. Uh, and then that morning of the 12th, uh, more relevant to this podcast, America's Dad movie star Tom Hanks announced he had tested positive in Australia while shooting a movie uh, and, you know, was was getting help for the vaccine. Now, most workplaces I know from my friends basically shut down office operations if they hadn't already uh, by that Friday the 13th, how appropriate. Um, you know, I only went into work that Friday, which, you know, all my coworkers had already left by that point and, and weren't coming in on that Friday uh, to pick up stuff from my desk that I had left behind and I would need for an extended work from home situation. You know, I, I remember that weekend before, you know, we knew we knew AMC was going to close down uh, basically that Monday and we wanted to make the most of it. So, you know, that thir- that Friday the 13th, we went and saw via AMC A-list Guy Ritchie's mob film The Gentleman. It was pretty much an abandoned theater. I think there was like one other couple aside from uh, one or two other couples aside from us watching the film uh, and no one was sitting close to each other. Um, and then on Saturday the 14th, uh, we went to the AMC 25 uh, Empire in Times Square to watch a film. Filipino zombie film uh, Block Z. And then so our lockdown began. And, you know, while things aren't fully back to normal just yet, you know, I, I, I can't let this one-year anniversary go pass unnoticed. Um, and, you know, as for what it's worth, you know, the, the pandemic and, and the shutdown basically did give me the time and the energy, even if the topic matter changed to, you know, like I said in past episodes, uh, have, kept, keep this podcast going. So here's the hoping we get back to normal sooner than later. And here's the hoping I can get back to the movie theater uh, sooner, definitely sooner rather than later. Uh, with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, suit me ideas for what I can uh, else I can cover over via at email, uh, boxofficewatchpodcast at jml.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find our show on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend. Any of that helps. Uh, if you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which helps me not only make this show, but all the other podcasts I work on, including the Oscars Death Race podcast. Uh, links to all of that in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come 
come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. Thank you.